0: This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility and listeners like you.
1: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we're continuing our series on emotions that we hide. We're going to start off with a short story about loneliness, and then I'll be speaking with author Amy Banks about the ways that loneliness actually starts to change your brain. She also gives us some techniques that we can use to strengthen our ability to connect with the people around us. First, the story.
2: I'm Joyce, and I'm from Vermont. Um, in the year 2000, the state of Vermont passed the civil union bill allowing um, gay and lesbians the right to have not a marriage, but a civil union And that was in April. And my partner at the time, we had been working on and hoping for this legislation to pass. It was also at the time where our relationship was tense. And of course, I wanted that to happen. I hoped that it would happen for us. And yet I also kind of saw the writing on the wall that it probably wasn't going to be for us. And in May of the same year, um, we separated. And the year that followed that was a year of being invited to one civil union ceremony after another. Needless to say, they were not really easy to go to as much as they were, many of them were my very closest, dearest friends, who I felt such happiness for. It. I just remember being at these, you know, beautiful parties and Um, big celebrations, feeling um, like, wow, all these people know something that I don't know. They know how to do something that I don't know how to do. And just that sense of um, failure and that sense of shame of um, watching all of these people just like confirm their love for each other. And... um, you know, so kind of going to these parties was such a mix because I so wanted to be in the company of that celebration, and yet I could feel myself a little bit apart from it. I could feel myself alone, wondering if this will ever happen to me. But often I'd leave, and I'd drive home, and I'd cry, and I'd, I'd have a lot of doubt. I'd feel very lonely, it feels a fair amount of, you know, I was somewhat different than those people at the party. And I can say now I'm, I, I've i remarried, I've married a man, I've been with him for 15 years, um, I've let go of a lot of these ideas about what it means to be in a couple, um, how it should be, um, what it should look like, which I think was pretty, um, you know, I think I had a narrow view as a younger woman. And I just have a deeper, deeper appreciation for how nobody really has a key.
1: I love that. Thank you, Joy, so much. I'm struck by a few things I wanted to respond to your story. The first is how the feeling of loneliness at those c- ceremonies, how much it was associated with feeling different, you know, that mm-hmm. somehow you felt like you were different than them, mm-hmm. Um, and, and in a sort of one-down kind of a way. Yeah. But the other thing that really strikes me is... Um, you know, in the media these days, there's a lot of talk about about white privilege, and I'm struck at the concept of sort of listening to you about couples' privilege. Like right. this. Like this, I think there's this very unspoken, almost sense of superiority uh, that couples can have of like, oh, yeah, we have our stuff together. You know, I'm with someone. And there's a sort of like a very subtle feeling of sort of what's wrong with you if you're still single kind of thing. It sounds like you really suffered with that. How do you see people who are single now?
2: I think that it takes an enormous amount of courage to be single in this world. When I I I'm very curious about single people. I have some very dear friends that are single and have been single for quite some time. I'm thinking about my one of my dear friends right now who's been single for probably 10 years now. And I there is I do have parts of me that feel really protective of her. I watch out, I make sure that she knows that she's not alone in the world, that she has you know, you know, she can borrow my car, I'll I'll take care of her dog. You know, like a lot of the things that we use our partners for, but I don't like the days where I kind of think that there's something the matter with the person or they're a little, you know, askew or I don't think that anymore, because I don't think that being in a couple is an insurance policy for well-being. Being in a couple doesn't keep you immune from loneliness. It doesn't keep you immune from those those awful knee-jerk reactions of care, comparing yourself to other people.
1: You know, I feel like in some ways in our culture, there's a there's not a lot of honesty uh, about. About how difficult relationships are Mm -hmm. or
2: or the fact that there's loneliness even within a marriage? There are times when I feel really lonely in the relationship that I have with my husband Peter. And I'm not sure that that my loneliness is a statement about him. My loneliness is a statement about me and my life and um, a lot of times my expectations or my sometimes what I imagine other couples are doing that I wish that we were doing, right? Like all of this kind of, I don't know, like creation that you make in your mind. Um, I feel like one of the things I'm learning
1: about loneliness just from having this conversation with you is about how much it's connected to comparing ourselves. Yeah. You know, that there you were at those civil unions comparing yourself to all these happy couples and, or that now that you are in a couple, like comparing yourself to other couples and what they're doing that you're not, it's just Yeah, so sp- yeah.
2: When you say that, that is often, loneliness is going to follow shortly after I compare myself to someone else. Because when I do that, I put myself in a position in which I am, I, I've just kind of turned my back on myself right so
1: you feel lonely when you compare yourself because you've just turned your back on yourself but the other thing i was thinking is when i compare myself to someone that i'm also kind of affecting the bond that i have with that person too right it's suddenly a different kind of connection that we have
2: you just it's, i just separated myself from you yes it's
1: almost like i use it as a i use the relationship almost more like a weapon against myself as opposed to right. a source of joy or connection. right? Uh, well, Joyce, thank you so much. I so appreciate this conversation. I feel like I'm going to be thinking about that for some time, about how comparisons play into loneliness. Um, and I loved what you said about nobody has the key. That's certainly my experience, too. I think sometimes as a psychiatrist, people think that coming to see me, I'm going to give them the key uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm going to disappoint them because of course I don't have it either. And in a way there's something that feels very comforting in realizing that that's actually a way that we're not lonely, like we're actually really connected in the fact that nobody has the key. It's a bond in fact. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to learn about loneliness, not only from people's personal stories, I wanted to consult with an expert. And about two weeks ago, just as we were putting together this series, I got an email from my old supervisor, Dr. Amy Banks. She was my psychotherapy supervisor when I was in residency 17 years ago. We haven't spoken in all that time. And I get an email from her uh, letting me know about her new book, which is actually about chronic disconnection and loneliness. So I was thrilled to interview her. On this show, Dr. Amy Banks uh, used to be on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and is now the director of advanced training at the Jean Baker Miller Advanced Training Institute at the Wellesley Centers for Women. She has just authored a new book, Four Ways to Click Rewire Your Brain for Stronger, More Rewarding Relationships. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Amy.
0: I am so happy to be here.
1: So you have a thesis in your book that chronic loneliness actually changes the brain and may even make it harder for people to engage with people. It it almost like this sort of vicious cycle. Yeah. And I wondered if you could tell me about that. How does loneliness change the brain in ways that make it harder to connect?
0: Well, so the first thing that I would say is that because, you know, what we know about the human brain and actually exists with mammal brains as well, is that, uh, we're wired to function best, to be most robust, to happiest, healthiest, physically, emotionally, um, when we're in healthy connection. And so this condition of loneliness or feeling sort of apart from society, socially excluded, if you will, is particularly destructive for us. Now, everybody Um, who's ever felt lonely, and I think a lot of us in this culture do feel lonely, but I think anybody who has ever has has uh, talked about it being a particularly painful experience. What's so interesting is research has now shown that when you are socially socially excluded, when you're not part of uh, a group or a relationship, you know, basically chronically disconnected, what happens is there's an area of your brain, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex that sort of lights up or is activated, when the researchers went to see what they knew about this brain already, they realized that, in fact, it's the exact same uh, place in the brain that lights up with the distress of physical pain. So to human beings, physical pain or injury or illness and social pain, being lonely, being socially excluded, being ostracized are the same thing in terms of the level of stress and and de-stress on our bodies. Um, It makes you unhealthy.
1: So it's like really a validation. It's like you already know you're suffering, but it's like a way of saying, even though you can't see it the way you'd see a broken arm or a surgical scar. That's right. It is really a a legitimate and powerful injury that we register physically.
0: That we register physically with the exact same pathway that we register Physical pain, right? That, right? They're one in one in the same because we are so uh, uh, relationship bound, if you right. will.
1: Yes. Okay. So I get that loneliness is registered physically and is actually associated with right. more physical illness. Yep. But how does loneliness m- and the changes that it brings out in our brains literally almost kind of trap us in a way that? That relating becomes even harder to do well.
0: Well, exactly. So um, in my book, I talk about uh, four pathways for connection. And what they are is they're neural pathways that each of us have. We're born with and in our healthy, hopefully healthy relationships as we're growing up. They they develop into ro- robust um, pathways that allow us to uh, feel calmer in relationships, more accepted, more resonant with other people, and literally more energetic. And as we're feeling all those things, in healthy relationships those get stronger and stronger so you can imagine when we, when someone is chronically disconnected really chronically isolated what's happening is just the opposite is those pathways that we need to read people accurately to feel accepted to be feel energetic in relationships those aren't being fed they're not being stimulated and in fact they begin to shrink and get smaller and smaller our brains our bodies our whole psyche our souls whatever you want to call it, don't do well in isolation, and of course, that's going to distort your reading of other people. How do, how right? would it? How would it? Well, so that imagine those pain pathways get more and more reactive, right? And you you know you creep out into the world. And maybe you're not met with, uh, like, hi, how are you? How are you doing? You know, you're just day-to-day at the supermarket or whatever. You're just getting sort of people's busy, flat affect. It's very easy for that to feed back in into another social rejection, right? So it's almost like you need to have... particularly engaged relationship to start t- turning the clock back. It's sort of the analogy. And because it is using the same area, the analogy is, you know, when you have chronic pain, right, then changes, changes in whether it's temperature or sensation or whatever actually end up feeling painful, right?
1: Right. So it's what I'm hearing is kind of like the self-fulfilling prophecy. So if I go out into the world in pain, then it's like I'm, I'm viewing the world through a kind of filter, Exactly. And, that, and what I'm seeing is what I'm sort of expecting to see, which is more rejection. You got it. And then I and then I relate to people as if as if they're already rejecting me when they're not. You got it. In a way that kind of pushes them away. Exactly. So you said those four things. You said calm, accepted, resonant and energized or energetic. Yep. And those are the ideal ways that I would feel in a relationship with someone.
0: Yes. So yes.
1: um what are some things, and, and I can, you know, I know for a fact that a lot of people don't feel calm in relationships. They feel nervous. They feel vulnerable. Let's start with that one because just being calm while being intimate can feel like such a risk.
0: Oh, absolutely. Right.
1: How, what are some concrete things that you, people can do with their brain to help them do that?
0: So that really references the smart vagus nerve, okay? And the smart vagus nerve is this new relatively new evolutionarily 50,000 years ago in mammals that has developed it literally in the context of social relationships. And what happens is that nerve innervates the muscles of facial expression, the you know, the the muscles in your eyebrows, your inner ears, your throat, and when you go out into the world, you know, if it's a, if you meet somebody that's friendly, right? What do you do? You engage. You usually smile as you smile. You're, you know, that whole engagement system gets stimulated. That feeds back into your uh, sympathetic nervous system, your heart and your lungs, and says, calm down. Okay? So one of the tasks, then, to being able to be intimate, close uh, with somebody else without, you know... Having the sympathetic nervous system break through is to really try to bolster that smart vagus or vagal tone is what people call it right okay. and i you know i have people do a number of things i mean you know all of the standard stress reduction techniques whether it's meditation you know any kind of mindfulness yoga exercise all of those that are going to decrease your sympathetic nervous system but then you got to think about how do i how do i bulk up this smart vagus my vagal tone so some of it i mean one of the one very simple thing and i have people do this just to kind of try it out to see what it's like go through your day and you can try this and go through your day and when you're walking down down the street, actually make eye contact with somebody and say hello. So think about that. I mean, really just a smile and a hello. that that begins to waken up the smart Vegas. And there are, you know a range of things that you certainly can do. Um, if people like a lot of people who are lonely maybe have a pet, you can do this with your pet. Pets have smart vagus nerves, too. If you have a dog, you know, get in there. Do the, the eye contact. Do the smiling. Do the the woofing, the barking.
1: Uh, but wait a second. So it, it what, what I hear you saying is that it matters what I'm doing. I thought it had to do with the kind of reception I get from the other person. So, no, you if, what can, if, so yeah. if I say, if I smile at a stranger and say hello... And he gives me a dirty look like, hello, don't you know this is a city and we're supposed to be
0: anonymous? (laughs) What you're going to, yeah, trust me, I've done this in any city I go to, yeah, and I do it on a daily basis. You're going to be shocked when you go out and do this. Nine times out of 10, the person will actually just look at you and say, hi. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a basic human interaction that we have kind of cut out, particularly here on the East Coast, Right. I mean, it's not everywhere. If you go to the Midwest, if you go to, you know, it's just in San Diego, you go there and this actually happens a little bit more. But to be thinking about it consciously, that each time you greet somebody in that way, it literally will, you know, sort of give a little hit, if you will, to your smart vagus nerve. It's like doing a vagal crunch. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's a vagal crunch. Um, (laughs) You know, there's, there's another thing that I recommend if you're in... Uh, if you're in a relationship that feels healthy enough, um, you could do something called relational mindfulness. Imagine doing a mindfulness practice where you're actually sitting across from somebody like you and I, and you could do it on Skype. You and I could do it right here, right? And and what you're doing is a deep. You know, deep breathing and looking at the person's face, reminding yourself to send compassionate thoughts to yourself, the other person, the relationship. And it's amazing when you actually watch this happen how, in the first couple of minutes, you get a lot of laughter, right? People are uncomfortable. Some people will get kind of scared, anxious, nervous. And then you can see this sort of deepening, this just sort of dropping into the safety, the intentional safety of that um space that you're creating with the other person and so think about it you're getting the you're getting the engaged the, the facial reading at the same time that you're actively trying to stimulate your de-stimulate your sympathetic nervous system it's a very far, powerful exercise
1: okay so if we're thinking about those four things calm accepted resonant and energetic we're working with the first one calm right now and what yes. i'm hearing you say is that Working on connecting with people with your face is part of how you build your capacity to be calm and to read other people clearly.
0: Yes, you got it. So so Mm -hmm.
1: literally working with your face and smiling at people and making eye contact helps you read other people more clearly?
0: Yeah. Yes. 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 Wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It almost seems too easy to be like, how? Because I think of I tend to think of it in a more sort of psychological way than a neurological way. I tend to think of reading other people um, as based on, you know, like transference, we would say in the field, but but, you know, that we would read other people based on are a set of expectations we have Uh in terms of how other people have treated us and that it's more psychological than neurological. So tell me about that.
0: So there's a piece of what you're saying that I certainly agree with, which is when you're going out into the world and reading other people, right, your mirror neuron system has to be stimulated by them, right? So if you smile, right, if you smile, I know you're Smiling out of a place of if it's genuine happiness or contentment or whatever, I can read that partly because in my own brain I've planned and executed the same kind of smile that you have, right? So I've smiled inside in the same way, and I feel it, right? Yeah. Now, what what you and I both I think are alluding to is that that whole system develops in the context of healthy relationships. So if you, uh if You were kind of raised, for instance, in an environment that was abusive or neglectful. And, you know, there was a mean face and you're saying, why are you mad at me? And the person says, I'm not mad. Right. Then you get the pairing. The pairing's wrong. My body resonated with your meanness or your anger, but but you labeled it as not anger. Right. Right.
1: Very confusing. Yeah.
0: It's very confusing, but all of that gets kind of wired in there. And so one of the things that I actually have people do for that resonance system is actually to do what I call spot checks. And so imagine this, if you're with somebody that, you know, you have a decent relationship with, it could be your partner, it could be, you know, it could be a friend. Um, Imagine if you say, okay, we're, you know, we're just hanging out this afternoon from time to time. You just Do a spot check. And what that means is you read the person and you say, okay, you look, you look bored. I think you're bored with what we're doing and actually say, is that accurate? You know, is that really what's happening? Mm, Right? Cool. Get it, get the, you know, that's a way to be reworking those pathways. There's actually a school that is doing this now in the classroom. They do spot checks throughout the day where they have people look around and read the face of the person beside them and then ask to see if it's accurate. And you think about that in terms of building, you know, not only the mirroring, which is there kind of innately, hopefully, but also the accuracy in naming what you see and feel.
1: So it's almost like empathy training.
0: Exactly. Yep.
1: Amy, it reminds me of this wonderful program. It's an anti-bullying program in Canada um, called The Roots of Empathy by Mary yes, Gordon. Yes. She brings in an a, a year-old baby, or even younger, into a kindergarten class once a week. Yeah. And the children are asked to sense, what is the baby feeling? And it's literally a training in empathy. And when kids have been through this program in, in kindergarten, the rates of bullying among them are apparently dramatically lower for years to come. Yep. So why aren't we all doing this, Amy?
0: That is is that that is my uh, ultimate goal and question. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this on a daily basis, right? I mean, I think the all I think this information needs to be in schools. I think it needs to be, you know, in any place where young kids are and old kids and, <laughs> you know.
1: So we just have a couple more minutes. So here's our. I'm, I want the take home for me was that. Working with building calm, you can work with eye contact and with both strangers and someone in a more intimate way. Working with um, empathy, you can have a friend that's willing to engage you in these spot checks to check in on whether you can read how they're feeling. So the second one was accepted. What is one exercise I could do to work on my capacity to feel a sense of belonging or more accepted?
0: I'm going to give you two. One is to monitor your brain for judgments. What we do in this culture... That's focused on competition is what we do with difference, is we immediately bring it in, we stratify it, and then we judge it. Every time we judge, somebody else or ourselves, we set up that bifurcation, somebody's in, somebody's out. I think the other thing that I would have everybody do is if you are somebody that is open to meditating, I would do the loving kindness meditations. Um, There've been studies that show that it does actually increase a sense of groundedness in kind of the greater uh, good of humanity, if you will, Uh, Mm. brings a sense of connectedness.
1: Lovely. And then the last system I know is the dopamine system to do with energy. And what can I do to boost that relationally with other people?
0: Well, so one of the things that that I would have people do is you, in the book, there's something called the care relational assessment. And when you do that, you're going to look at your relational web, your relational world. And make an assessment of it. You're. It's going to, what people talk about is it like if your relational world pops up in 3D, the first thing you have to do is I have to identify some relationships that have a high E score in the care assessment. Um, those are going to be the ones that have more energy. And so one of the things you have to think about is where am I actually getting my dopamine hits? If I've not if I'm not connected to energy, where am I getting them? Am I drinking at the end of the day? Am I eating a lot of ice cream and am, am I shopping? What am I substituting uh energy and healthy relationship for? And then begin to uh actually make um you know healing connections with other people that you can say okay you know what I'm about to have my third glass of wine I should reach out to somebody else from my higher energy group and make a connection I mean it's about keeping your dopamine reward system wired to healthy relationship rather than all of these aberrant really destructive uh pathways and do you think that a,
1: a healthy psychotherapy relationship can actually do some of that
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I still believe in psychotherapy. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay, good. As my <laughs>
1: former psychotherapy supervisor. And so lastly is, how hopeful is this, Amy? Because in our last week's show, we talked with someone who had really struggled with chronic feelings of loneliness and a kind of a giving up. Like he just couldn't turn to other people. And if someone really does these exercises and they really work on it, is is chronic loneliness something that, can really
0: change? I believe wholeheartedly that it can. To, this, to to my deepest soul, I've been working with trauma survivors who have had lots of chronic disconnection for over 20 years. And seeing people change and come out of that shadow of isolation is a profound experience. And what I really hope to offer people is, you know, not just a, you know, the word, this is hopeful, but also, Uh, you know, a step-by-step way to try to see what relationships are doing in your life, see how they're impacting you, see how your care pathways work, and really using the rules of neuroplasticity and brain change, really try to use your brain to change your relationships. And I think that's kind of a novel way to head into this um, idea of decreasing loneliness. Absolutely. Yes.
1: So thank you so much. So Amy Banks, uh, your book is Four Ways to Click, Rewire Your Brain for Stronger, More Rewarding Relationships. And you really do that. You lay out a lot of concrete strategies. Thank you so much. It's so fun to have you be my guest. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Good to see you. Next week, we're going to start telling stories about guilt, how hard it is to carry, how much we long to confess, and when it's time to let it go. If you like this show and want to hear more of our series on the emotions that we hide, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com where you can listen to all of our past shows. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released my thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor coming up next is Speak Freely